Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that in these moments together that you would give us this glorious vision that by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, we have real communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, give us the grace that we need until we truly are your church at rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Last year, a man named Tom Rayner posted the top 10 ways that churches drive away first-time guests. I'll share a few of my favorites. Number nine of the top 10 ways that churches drive away first-time guests. Number nine, members telling guests that they were in their seats or pews. I hope none of that happened to you this morning. If it did, I'm sorry. Number seven, Insider church language. His favorite that he heard was this. The WMU will meet in the CLC in the room where the GAs usually meet. We will try to avoid MPC insider language. Others that you would expect are on this list such as poor signage, bad facilities, unfriendliness, and boring services. But the number one answer brought almost 600,000 views to this page and had several hundred comments. What was the number one reason that drove away first-time guests? Number one, having a stand-up and greet one another time in your worship service. (laughs) Welcome to MPC. Some comments about it. One person said, It's not that I don't want to participate in a meaningless, obligatory greeting. It's just that I don't want to participate in a meaningless and obligatory greeting. Someone else said, ditch greet time, just get on with the service. I'm pretty sure that was somebody from D.C. Short and to the point. So why do we have a meet and greet or a passing of the peace in our worship service? Yes, There is something awkward about it. But yes, there is also something profound about this moment in our worship service. And I hope to make that clear to you through this sermon. Community, even greeting one another, is awkward. And perhaps it's even more awkward or doing relationships It's harder in our present cultural condition with all of our social media. And perhaps that's why we need it the most. Paul gives us two simple, important truths about community in this passage. And I want to point them out to you. The first is this. It's brilliant. It's simple. But it's simple. Paul calls us to connect the gospel to community. Grace will inevitably create community. Look at the beginning of verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling to that which you have received. Christian, what have you received? A better question would be, what have we not received that therefore is referring back to the previous three chapters. What have we received in Christ? Let me summarize 
for you the first three chapters of Ephesians. The first three chapters of Ephesians tell us that the all-powerful, almighty, infinite Lord of the universe has withheld no blessing from a people who have committed cosmic treason with the very mind, souls, and bodies that He gave us. That He sent His only begotten Son to shed His blood to redeem us to Himself. That He has done away with our sin. That He has covered our shame. That He has taken away our guilt, past, present, and future. That we have been adopted into the family of God. That we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That we have been given the same resurrection power that caused Jesus to rise again from the dead. That you and me as believers in Jesus Christ, we have been promised an inheritance that is imperishable, unfathomable, and eternal by the very Lord of the universe. That is what we have received in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then Paul says, Therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of what you have received. What does the word worthy mean? Worthy gives us this idea of weight. You see, our English word axiom actually comes from this Greek word. Now, I'm not a math major, but in an equation, the axiom indicates doing something to each side of the equation so it remains true. The weight is the weight of chapters 1, 2, and 3. The weight is the weight of glory. To be loved by God and to be delighted in. And Paul says, balance the equation. Paul is saying that we should try to live lives in community equal to the great blessings described in these three chapters. He says, Christians, this is who you are. Now live like that reality. Now it's really important to emphasize what Paul does not mean. Paul does not mean that we should try to deserve God's favor. It means that we should recognize how much God's favor deserves from us. This is who you are. Look, you are in the family of God to stay, and God does not regret saving you, and you will not be kicked out. And Paul says, embellish this. Be enamored by this truth. And if you get this, it will change the way that you live. And Christians who don't understand that we are saved by grace through faith, not the works of our own. Christians who live like practical works-based Christians, we will have a community full of backbiting, gossiping, power-hungry, grumbling, impatient, fighting people because we will be a people not full of grace, but we will be a people full of fear and insecurity. And fearful and insecure people cannot love one another. Now, what is Paul saying in these first verse, few verses here? He's saying, this is who you are in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now let who you are change how you live. It makes sense if you really think about it. 
Think about even the story of adoption. Think about a family who adopts a son or a daughter who is an absolute, complete mess because they're just from horrible circumstances. You adopt this child, why? Not because they're great, but you adopt this child because you love them. And you adopt this child because of grace. And when this child comes to live with you, what do you say to this child? You don't say, you know what? You can keep acting the exact same way that you've always acted. Don't change. You don't have to do your homework. You don't have to clean your room. You don't even have to go to school. Do whatever you want to. What does the family say? They say what? They say, we love you. And you bear our name. You are in our family. And because we love you so much, we want to hold your feet to the fire until you become great. Until you become the person that God created you to be. I love you so much. I want you to change. I want you to be fully alive. But you know, we say the same thing to a God who wants to adopt us. God, if you, if you really love me without condition, then I don't want you to ask me to change. Think about that. The God of the universe is more jealous and more zealous and He will hold your feet to the fire in order to make you great because He loves you. God wants to see you become fully alive because of His grace. It's ridiculous for us to hear God say, come to me, grow with me, and you will become alive in Christ. And we say, nah, I want to stay the same way that I am. <laughs> Do you see the ridiculous response to a God of grace who has offered everything to us in the gospel? Now, I don't know where you're coming from this morning. You may be a Christian. You may not be a Christian. But I would submit to you that all of us in this room live with brokenness in community. And I would submit to you that the only solution to the brokenness of our community, of our world, is the grace of the gospel. It doesn't take much. Look around the world. We have conflict in political parties. We have conflict between different races. We have conflict in our families. We have conflict with our spouses. We have conflict with our children. We have conflict with our parents. We have conflict with our friends. And we live lonely and isolated lives because we are a people full of insecurity and fear. And it is really hard for insecure, fearful people to love other insecure, fearful people. In order to live Without pretending, we need the grace of the gospel. This grace makes us into new creatures. So, Jim Cofield is coming in a few weeks to do this conference on marriage, the odd dance of intimacy. And I told you last week that Jim has had a profound impact on me personally and pastorally. And one of the things that he said that has stayed with me in class was this. He said, people are faithful to the images that they have of themselves. How do you see you? 
What do you think about yourself? You see, sin distorts our ability to see ourselves and we see us only through our eyes. But the gospel of grace enables us to see us through God's eyes, that we are image bearers, that we have value and dignity and worth because we are made in His image. And so the gospel of grace destroys our insecurity and our fear because we're loved by the God of the universe and true communion is possible. It's probable. It's more than probable. It's inevitable for those who are in Christ. A question for all of us to consider this morning is this. How would your community, and I'm talking about the people who live around you, your family, your friends, this church, how would this community be different if your identity was firmly rooted in Christ? That's the question that our students have been asking all year. They've been studying the book of Ephesians. And they've been wrestling with identity, thinking about if they understand whose they are, it will change how they live. When you know who you are, you know what to do. When you hang out with Jesus, you become like Jesus. And when you hang out with people who are handcuffed to Jesus, we have a community of people who are handcuffed to Jesus and to one another. Gospel of grace produces community, a lively community. And Christians, this is really important because the question that I have for you this morning is this. Are you still enamored with what you have received in Christ? Many of you know I have three little boys, age seven, five, and two. I love being a dad. One of the things that I love about being a dad and about having little kids is experiencing things through their eyes. The first time that my oldest son had a sip of Coca-Cola was priceless. It burns. Who would possibly drink this stuff? Yeah, it's awesome. Or the first time that we were out in the backyard and they saw bugs that had lights on them and you could catch them and put them in a jar. It was amazing. Or what about my two-year-old right now who is fascinated by airplanes in the sky and who can't avoid but pointing out every jet that flies over our house. Or the first time that you take your children to the ocean and the waves come crashing towards them. You see, all of these things are amazing, but I hardly pay attention to them anymore. Why? Because I have become too familiar. Christians, it's possible to become so familiar with grace that you will become dead. Dead orthodoxy. Christians, we have to be enamored by grace. We can't become so familiar with it where we could explain all the right doctrines of grace, but none of us are experiencing it. Presbyterians, listen up. I'm quoting another Presbyterian pastor. He says this, Being alive in Christ involves doctrinal purity and relational beauty. Being alive in Christ requires doctrinal purity and relational 
beauty. Schaefer would describe this as we must have orthodox doctrine and orthodox community. Are we still amazed at what we have received in Christ? When you look at all the great revivals over the last few hundred years, do you know what has stoked the fires of these revivals? It has been a wonder, a rediscovery, not a discovery of a new truth, but a rediscovery of an old truth. Individuals have been amazed by the gospel of grace. It happened in the 1700s in the Americas. It happened in the 1800s in the UK. It happened in Korea in the 1900s when free and undeserving grace becomes really amazing. Community comes alive. Paul calls us to connect the gospel to community. Grace creates community. The second truth that Paul gives us in Ephesians 4 is this. Paul describes those who have connected the gospel to community. You see, grace changes community. Paul describes what this calling will look like, and he gives us four characteristics. It's not an exhaustive list, but there's four characteristics that I want to highlight out of verse 2. And as I looked at this list this past week, the thing that struck me is that each of these characteristics are quite ordinary. But I would submit to you, if we are just ordinary, we will be amazing and countercultural. How so? Well, let me lay out these four characteristics. The first thing that Paul says is, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. William Temple gives us a definition that I can't improve on. He says, humility does not mean thinking less of yourself than of other people, nor does it mean having a low opinion of your own gifts. It means freedom from thinking about yourself one way or the other at all. You see, nothing will kill a community faster than the pride of its people. And the only thing that will really, really destroy pride is the gospel. Why? Because what does the gospel tell you? On the one hand, the gospel tells you that you are deeply flawed, that you're deeply broken, that you are deeply sinful, that God had to send His Son to die on the cross for your sins. That will make you humble. You will realize that you are a sinner. But then the gospel will also tell you that you are a sinner saved by grace. That though you are deeply broken, that though you are deeply flawed, you are deeply loved. And you see, that keeps us from living lives of superiority or inferiority. You are flawed, broken, and you are loved and adopted in the family. You see, we should be a people that bear the mark of humility. People can get along inside this church that could never get along outside of this church because of grace. Andrew Murray described it, what it would look like. He says, Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is for me to have no trouble, never to be fretted or vexed or irritated or sore or disappointed. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest 
when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and be at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around is trouble. That's what humility is in a community. The second characteristic that Paul gives us is gentleness. And gentleness has been described as power under control. Meekness. Not weakness. But it means to be teachable or modest, generous, and considerate towards others. Gentleness is a word that's used to describe Jesus. And I love this description in Matthew 12 of Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking wick he will not put out till he brings forth judgment to victory. A bruised reed, a smoking wick, requires tenderness and gentleness. Maybe some of you feel that way today. Maybe you feel like you are broken. Broken life, broken heart. And the gentle Jesus, if you come to Him, He will not crush you. You won't be... You will be healed, not harmed. Gentleness of Jesus is remarkably revealed on the cross. Remember the words from the cross when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Do you see the gentleness in that? Because Jesus is pointing out that they are sinful, but at the same time, the gentleness of Jesus is saying, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Strength and gentleness in Jesus. I think most of us in our communities err on one side or the other. I think many of us are full of strength with very little gentleness. And I would submit to you that if you never respond to someone with whom you're in conflict with tenderness and graciousness, then you are not treating them with the gentleness of Jesus. But I think many others fall off the other side and have a misunderstanding of what true gentleness is. I think many of us are cowards, myself included. I think we're afraid to speak truth into one another's lives for fear of rejection and we name that gentleness. That's not gentleness either. That's cowardice. So the second mark that we should have as a community that is fully alive, that is renewed by the gospel, is that we should be famous for our gentleness. The third characteristic is patience. And that's simply defined as waiting. And waiting as those who do not abandon hope. It's the ability to take trouble from life and from others without grumbling. To suffer joyfully. The same word is used for inhabitants in a city who are under siege. It's the same word used of a farmer who works tirelessly waiting patiently for the harvest to come in. It's what Hebrews 6 says, We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Patience is an attribute of God. We are told that God 
is a God of love, that He's slow to anger and abounding in love. Romans 2 says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? For thousands and thousands and thousands of years, the most holy God of the universe has been patient to a people who have committed cosmic treason, continually and faithfully offering the free gift of the gospel to a people who reject it over and over and over. Our God is a patient God. And the more His people see His patience, the more we will become like Him we will be patient and we will be a community that is famous for our patience. The fourth characteristic in addition to humility, gentleness, and patience is what I would call long-suffering. It's what Paul says, bearing with one another in love. Now, bearing means way more than simply tolerating each other. In love means that you in this community are committed to seeking the greatest good for one another. Long-suffering is a combination of two Greek words. The first one means long or slow, and the second means anger. Literally, it means to be long-tempered. Long-suffering means to be long-tempered. I tried to think of a good illustration for this one. I don't have a good one, but I have an illustration. So you have to imagine a family pet. And this family pet has to be a dog, not a cat. And the specific type of dog needs to be a golden retriever. So you've got that golden retriever in your mind. Now picture your golden retriever with your three-year-old toddler. You know what I'm talking about? That three-year-old toddler is going to start yanking on that tail of the golden retriever, start playing with the ears, hopping on its back, and that golden retriever, though it's peeved, just looks at your three-year-old and almost sorts of smiles at you. That's what it means to be long-suffering. You see, Paul is not naive. When he creates a community of sinners, he knows that we are going to offend one another. He knows that there are going to be people in this room that pull your tail. And Paul says, when they pull your tail, I want you to be long-suffering. I want you to bear with one another, endure each other in love. Ordinary things, humility, gentleness, patience, long-suffering. But I look at that list and I think, man, who can do that? But then Paul gives us this amazing illustration in Ephesians 2. You think you have trouble getting along with people? The Jews and the Gentiles had more. Here are some of the things that characterized their community in biblical times. The Jews believed the Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. One motto in one of the communities was, The best of the serpents crush, the best of the Gentiles kill. It was even not lawful in some communities for a Gentile woman to be aided in giving birth 
for that would mean bringing another heathen into the world. But Paul points out that Jews and Gentiles are to live in community in the church. Why? He gives several reasons in Ephesians 2. He says we are saved in the same way. And on that basis, there is a new creature. There's a new body. There's a new temple. There's a new nature that we are one. What does he say? He says, Jews and Gentiles, I don't care if you're from different races. I don't care if you're from different parts of the world. But both of you, all of you in this room were alienated. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. But all of you who know Christ in this room, Jews and Gentiles, you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Both have been made one in Christ and reconciled to God. Blood is thicker than water, but only the blood of Jesus that unites our souls together. And Paul says, now Jews and Gentiles... You are fellow citizens in the same kingdom. You are members of the same body. You are parts of the same family. You are one. And then he gives this list of seven ones in Ephesians chapter 4. Church. Community of Christians. You are to be one. Do you know that's what Jesus prayed for you and for me in John 17? He said, Father, make them one so that by the way that they love one another, the world will know how much I love them. You see, that's the Keller quote on the front of your bulletins, that community is not just the result of the gospel, but biblical, lively community is a proclamation and itself is an expression of the gospel. A revived church is full of humility, gentleness, patience, and long-suffering. Grace changes community. Now, the best context for you to experience community at MPC is through our home fellowship groups. And one church growth expert said that you can measure a church's consumer mentality versus their community mentality by the percentage of people that are involved in small groups. He says if you have less than 50% of your worshiping uh, body involved in small groups, you are a consumer church. I've got good news for you. We are over 50% at MPC. We have a wonderful community here. You see, when revival happens, community happens. George Whitfield and John Wesley led a great revival where millions came to faith in Christ. And one of the things that they did as people came to Christ, they organized them into small bands or small groups of 10 people that were to meet together during the week to pray together, to share one another's burdens. And people pushed back on it. They said, we don't want to be in small groups. We want to come to corporate worship. We want to be in one of those weird, awkward, small groups where we have to talk about our feelings and help one another. That's just crazy talk. And I love, I love John Wesley's response calmly to all of these people that rejected religion as simply a private manner. This is what he said. He said, the Bible says, confess your sins to one another. James 5.16 Exhort one another daily so we're not hardened by sin. 
Hebrews 3.13 Teach and admonish one another in wisdom. Colossians 3.16 Stir one another up to love and good works. Hebrews 10.24 Bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2 Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Romans 12.15 And this is how he concluded. Now if you do not meet to do these things... When will they get done? When will they get done? You see, it's in the context of community that we live as followers of Jesus who have been changed by the gospel of grace that we might be famous, that we might be known. When people talk about NPC, they would say, that is a community of people that are humble, that are gentle, that are patient, that are long-suffering. Might that be true of you? Might that be true of me? So why do we greet one another as an act of worship, even though it's so awkward? Friends, we greet one another and extend the peace of Christ because in that moment, we are saying something profound. We are declaring... And we are reminding one another that the greatest conflict in human history between a holy God and sinful humans has been reconciled at the foot of the cross. And not only are we reconciled to the Lord of the universe, but that grace that comes to us enables us to have communion with one another. That grace changes our relationships. Friends, it's awkward. But it's profound and it's important. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to be what we prayed earlier. That we would be a community where the glorified Christ is shown, known, loved, served, and exalted. Father, would the prayer that the Son prayed for us be true of MPC and Christians worldwide, that we would be known for our oneness, that we would be known for our love for one another. Father, we pray for corporate gospel renewal, that the way that we treat one another would be changed by this amazing doctrine of grace. Lord, we pray for doctrinal purity, but we also pray for relational beauty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.